passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another edition of Cruel Summer, our look back at each and every G1 Climax Tournament Finals from the year 1991 to 2018. And this is episode 11, and I'm very excited because a couple of reasons why. One, we're going to talk about one of my favorite G1 Climax Tournament Final matches, Keiji Muto versus Yuji Nagata. And also, I'm going to give a brief history about uh, Keiji Muto's 2001, which in my opinion is his best year ever it's my favorite year of his career but also not the least of which is my co-host today uh he is the mastermind one of the masterminds behind this particular website you're listening to postwrestling.com he is also a man who wears a snap back cap snap back mm-hmm. cap like no one else he is waiting way how are you today I'm awesome. That is the first time anyone in my uh, in any type of introduction or biography for me has mentioned uh, my my snapback hat wearing ability. So I thank you for recognizing that. It's it's hard not to wait. Eh? Like pretty much every picture I ever see you in is you're wearing a snap some form of a snapback cap. You know, like different logos. Usually, of course, these days with the the post wrestling one, which yeah. is amazing. I love the post wrestling store. We'll we'll plug all that stuff on this show that appears on the post wrestling website if we ha- if we can but honestly it's it it comes down to just me being really lazy to do my hair <laughs> i wake up and it's just like my hair's a mess like every day so i don't know how you do it wh i don't know how people walk around with the, with that stuff hair styling hair? hair every day come on well i mean john's got the perfect solution doesn't he that he does yes absolutely <laughs> i remember a time when john had hair I do too. Yeah, I mean, there's some photo and video evidence out there if you look hard enough. I remember a time when he dyed his hair black and had earrings and flame shoes and just, you know, stuff that um, he's evolved. He's evolved. He has evolved. I've known him since he was 15. Wow. Damn. That's more than half his life. Yeah. That is. It's crazy. I'm always amazed. I tell John this sometimes. It's like, I'm amazed that from the the teenager that I met at O'Grady's and I look over... With like, I, I probably be sitting with Mouth and Mike Murray. I'd look over and think, "Who's this fucking kid over here? Why is he in this bar? This is license place." 
And then I'd find oh. out, oh, we like I think it was Jeff Merrick who got who got permission because John's brother was doing stuff with the law at the time. And then like Jeff Merrick got like permission from O'Grady's because he knew the the manager. I think his name was Jimmy. He said he asked Jimmy if like, oh, can he he's not gonna drink anything. He's just he's with us. Is it okay? And then like Jimmy's like, yeah, it's cool. It's just as long as he doesn't order any alcohol, no one gives him any alcohol. So that that was how I met John. And I think I I put on like we used to I used to bring tapes to O'Grady's after Monday night. We'd put in like like some all Japan match or some New Japan match. And then I think John just came up to me and just started talking to me about the tapes and stuff like that. And then that's how I met John. And then here we are, 2018. And it's like, wow, I'm I'm like doing stuff with you guys, with you and John nowadays. And it's like it's really amazing to me to see that evolution of John Pollock. Also to see the evolution of you, Way. Like from the, I can't remember exactly when we met. Do you remember? It was probably at O'Grady's as well, because I probably jumped jumped in like when I started call screening for for the law, and then um they invited me to do the O'Grady's trivia nights as well. So probably one of those. Yeah, probably. I'm gonna say, I don't know. I came back to Toronto from my first trip in Japan in 2001. So I'm gonna say probably we met 2001, 2002. No way. No, I was not a part of it back then. Uh, it would be 2006. I, or seven, we've, I think. Okay, so we've known each other about ten years then. Jeez, that's amazing. Um, I was gonna say like that that great story that you had about John. I think that that content is perfect for the John Pollock Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> that thing really needs to be fleshed out. If anybody wants to add that great anecdote from W H Park, I think uh, have at it. He's not from Philadelphia. Yeah, he actually talked about about it today. There's apparently another John Pollock. Who was quoted in a WWE book of some sort, um, talking about growing up in Philadelphia, going to the ECW arena? That that is not this John Pollock. So, you know, more 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 than one person has a, has that name out there. So, it's fun. It, I think he keep, he should keep it there. I I think it should just stay there. Like, don't edit that. Uh, do you, now I gotta check if I have a Wikipedia page now, or do you have a Wikipedia page now, Way? I don't believe so. Um, and I I. It's, uh, maybe I should make one for myself. So. I think you should beat people to the punch so they don't say you're like, oh, he grew up in like Wisconsin as the son of a of a of a beer factory worker, or something like that. Well, that would be uh, quite the uh, status symbol to have an incorrect Wikipedia page. It would be. I I I think the only time I've ever mentioned in Wikipedia is for the live audio wrestling <laughs> Wikipedia page. I don't even know if that's still there. I might be it might be gone. gone. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm on Wikipedia. Like, like we just mentioned, right? Like, I think with like because I was doing uh, Japanese audio wrestling with Chris, yeah. Chris Charlton, and uh, yeah, that's that's also an interesting story. How he went from like the guy I met to to joining doing the Japanese audio wrestling, and then he's now the you know the translator commentator for New Japan for wrestling. <laughs> Look at this. It's just it's the magic touch. It's the launch pad, like, you know, like knowing you and John is like the launch pad to oh, great geez. success. And, and <laughs> but yeah, uh, what was I going to ask you about? Oh, OK. So usually I ask for background of my various co-hosts because not not all of them are like super well known, but I don't think we necessarily need that. But from you. But what I want to ask you is like, what's your background for for your fandom for Japanese pro wrestling and specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, I. I think it kind of came at about the same time when I really got into wrestling as an adult. As many people who listen to the podcast know, I was a fan throughout my childhood, but I stopped like 
pretty much like right before the Attitude Era. Like my my fandom is kind of like almost opposite of like what most people's in that I didn't really follow it during Hulkamania. I followed it pretty much at the tail end of Hulkamania. My 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 whole generation was the new generation, was the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels generation. And then once Bret was kind of done, at least being the champion, um, and before he made his heel run, I kind of tuned out. I was kind of into other things. I was into music. Um, and then I didn't really jump back in until like some, I think it was like the finger poke of doom where, I mean, it was just, again, it had the opposite effect on me that, that it had on most people, I suppose, where I just saw this thing and I was like, whoa, cool. But he beat him with a finger. Isn't that amazing? Now the NWO is all together. That's so cool, everybody. So like my friends were just texting me, wow, look, look how stupid this is. I'm like, what? This is great. I mean, I don't know if that was the actual catalyst or not, but it basically got me somewhat interested in wrestling again. Like, you know, something I had that I had kind of missed out on was like the whole even like NWO thing. I mean, I'm fully caught up on everything now, probably too much to like too much of an extent from doing our shows. But um, yeah, so it was that. And then it was like getting into message boards, getting into uh, live audio wrestling, finding basically the next layer of professional wrestling that I didn't really get into as a child, like the, the behind the scenes politics, the the interesting, all that stuff that to me became way more interesting than like the actual wrestling itself. But in addition to that, um, listening to things like the law, you know, hearing Jeff Merrick and Dan Lebransky give recommendations for a lot of Japanese wrestling, I would eventually kind of like seek that stuff out on my own through, um, you know, a lot of people used uh, at back then like news groups, um, FTP services. I don't know if that was a thing for you, but I was always on this thing called hotline, which is like not a physical phone hotline, but like um, some type of FTP thing that like Mac users used. and. Uh, I found like these, you know, I, I'm just going to call them news groups because I don't know what else you really call them, but like news groups with like Japanese wrestling matches, you know, obviously a lot of other English, uh, North American wrestling matches as well, but in particular, like just folders and folders of like indies of Japan, but it was in particular the Japanese wrestling that really caught my eye. So I just kind of like binged, you know, a lot of like the classics, starting with the J Cup, starting with, you know, uh, all Japan from like the 90s, but then eventually working my way towards like, Mishinoku Pro, um, which I really loved. Battle Arts was some, something I watched a lot of as well that, that I really enjoyed. Um, and then it that kind of, I would say, maybe ran its course until maybe about 2001-ish. Um, and actually, like, you know, appropriate that we're doing this show because I was not following much New Japan at the time. But I do remember, like, Keiji Muto having, like, an amazing year that year or, or even slightly prior with, like, the... Uh, was it like um? It was either was it a Kawada match? Um, uh, or... that would have been in 2000, 2001, 2002. I think it's two thousand one because that's when he comes back. But we'll talk about. I'll talk a bit about like you know the the two thousand era of of Keiji Muto, which is when he's in WCW a little later. But it is two thousand one. I I call it the Renaissance of Keiji Muto between mm-hmm. two thousand one and two thousand three. Is like this amazing two year period? It's, He's doing both New Japan and All Japan. And then in 2002, he takes over as the president and owner of All Japan Pro Wrestling. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, you know, that kind of like, I was kind of really into Japanese wrestling from that point on. And then uh, beyond that, I um, actually kind of, st- uh, I watched a lot of WWE as well, of course. But then like, I kind of, 
you know, went more into the MMA uh, route just because I kind of got tired by of professional wrestling. I was like well, somebody who watched The Ultimate Fighter and kind of found my realism in professional wrestling the, in MMA. So I started doing that, and it wasn't really until I got back in to wrestling uh, after I started working for the Fight Network where I got into things like ROH because we broadcasted ROH. At some point, we got the rights to air Pro Wrestling Noah matches, so... Um, they knew that I had, you know, an interest in not just, you know, obviously television production, but also in Japanese wrestling. So they kind of made me the producer of our English, um, commentary versions of pro wrestling Noah. So I spent a good, probably like year producing, like, I want to say like 40 something episodes of English commentary, uh, pro wrestling Noah from like the, the prime Noah years, uh, with Dan Lebransky and more Ronaldo. And I remember actually talking to you asking for some notes uh, at the time. And yeah, so I mean, that would sort of be my my history with it. Well, I hope I provided good notes if, if I got back to you. I can't remember if I... But I think you I basically did. told me like, you know, this, like the stories are basically in the matches is I think the gist of what you kind of told me. You know, it's, it's not really heavy on like, you know, big storylines or anything like that. Yeah, that was like prime, you know. Mm-hmm. Too. like you talk about like the mid mid aughts as they say uh that's like that's marfuji kenta are like rising mishima's yep. rising up there sigiera these are guys like who are big stars now but like they were just like the undercard guys who were having these killer matches but at the top was still like masawa kobashi tawe akiyama so like it's it was it was an amazing period like to see from that era of noah I and mean, we're not going to talk too much about noah because this is like about new japan but to now which is like little saddening to me because like it, it, the heights that they were at to like not the depths but like they're not at that level anymore and it's 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 for me it's it's very hard to see if and when they'll ever get back to that level uh, mm-hmm. i just think the the landscape of wrestling has changed in japan so much that i i it's very hard to see what's going to change like change in the in the terms of like who's going to challenge new japan for dominance of the market share in in japan so i Right now, I don't see anyone doing that, to be honest. But anyways, let's get into partly one of the reasons why New Japan has such a dominance in the marketplace, because traditionally they've been such a strong company. They're, we're, we're, we're heading into the 2000s, which is where they kind of dip, but we're not at that point yet. In 2001, New Japan Pro Wrestling is very, very much still a very, very hot company. And we're going to talk about the G1 Climax of that year, and we're going to talk about the finals. And the finals are between two of my favorite wrestlers, uh, Yuji Nagata and Keiji Muto. So let me give a bit of a background on this particular tournament. Uh, the 2000, uh, 2001 G1 Climax was a two-block, 12-man uh, round-robin tournament held from August 4th to August 12th, which is a far cry. I say this every show, uh, way that like like we got we got like about six weeks of G1s now. Jeez. I wish we, that, I wish I was covering doing podcasts back when it was only a week, man. <laughs> Only a week, and the tournament started in Osaka and moved to Nagoya and Sendai before finally settling in at Sumo Hall in Tokyo for the last three days. Uh, let's talk about the participants of the G1 in A Block. We have Yuji Nagata, uh, Tadao Yasuda, Manabu Nakanishi, Kazunari Murakami, Tatsumi Fujinami, and uh, the junior heavyweight uh, participant in this particular block. In this particular block is. Uh, Minoru Tanaka, who you might wait, well, you might be familiar because he used to be mm-hmm. in Battle Arts yes. before transferring over. I to watched Tech him Wrestling. for the, I watched him for the first time live during WrestleMania weekend at an MLW taping that I I was not expecting to see him in. It was it was bizarre. 
Yeah, he's aged very well. He's still yeah. a really top level wrestler. So like I- I've seen him live maybe a couple of times, like during Noah shows in recent years, because that's where he works now. Uh, let's go to B Block. So in B Block we have Keiji Mudo, uh, Masahiro Chono, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, Satoshi Kojima, uh, the other junior heavyweight in this tournament, Jushin Thunder Liger, and Osamu Nishimura. And of those names, Wei, who are you like not so familiar with? To be quite honest, I wasn't really following much New Japan at this time. So, I mean, a great deal of them I did not really see in their prime. So, uh, certainly somebody like Osabu Nishimura, I've never even heard of. I don't think I've seen a match of, of theirs. Um, other names, you know, are, are kind of often mentioned enough that I have some, you know, recollection of, of what their style is, what they look like, how they wrestle. But to be quite honest, like, my background in this era of New Japan is not very strong at all. So, I look forward to the education. Okay, so let's talk about the path to the finals. For Yuji Nagata, his path to the finals was beating uh, Tatsumi Fujinami, Minoru Tanaka, and Tada Yasuda. Uh, he went to a draw with uh, Kazunari Murakami, and he lost to his good friend, Manabu Nakanishi. Uh, Mudo's path, he beat his, his fellow three musketeer, uh, Masahiro Chono. He beat uh, Jushin Thunder Liger. He beat Nishimura, and he beat Tenzan. And his only loss was suffered to Kojima. So in the semifinals, uh, semifinals were set up like the top two point getters of each block. So like uh, we would say A1, A2, uh, and B1, B2 would fight each other in different in, in the semifinals. So A1 would fight B2, and yeah. B1 would fight A2. That would be the format. So in the semifinals, we had Nagata beating Masahiro Chono and Kejimuro beating Yasuda. So even though maybe Chono didn't have high points, he still had a chance to stay alive and get into the finals. So I, I kind of wish they would kind of bring this format back to current uh, G1 climaxes. Because it adds suspense all the way to the last semifinals? Or- yeah, I, I, I do find like, you know, you can predict by the like, you know, by the tail end of the, of the tournaments, even the current, as of this recording, we're in the kind of the, the tail end of the best of the Super Juniors of 2019. And it, it, it's becoming very predictable with mm-hmm. who's going to go into the finals. There's some drama that you can create just using uh, like the the blocks the block the league blocks and and having point system but i i kind of like the semi-final i think you can also put those in the last show to like kind of pad out the the card and like get, a, get away from using all these undercard matches to pad out the card i think the g1 climax should have more mm, drama like more high level matches and involving the g1 not just having the finals on the show mm-hmm. so that that's just my from a selfish point of view i would love to have seen more drama when i've been to the the, the finals in like the time I've been living in Japan so far. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Why do you think they changed that? I think because they, you know, they wanted to pad out the schedule. Like we're saying, this is only a week in 2001. Right. It's only a week. And then now it's like a near, it's almost like what a six, five to six week schedule. And that's like almost four to five days out of each week. It's, it's and they're making a shitload of money. Yeah. You know, that's the reason why they've expanded it is because they, they're selling out a lot of these shows and they're making a lot of money from the ticket gate and from merchandise. And that's like, you know, like we talk about, you know, North America, like rights fees are very important. Pay-per-view numbers are very important. These are not considerations in Japan. The, the, the way Japanese professional wrestling companies make money is primarily through the gate, the live, live attendance and through a merchandise sales. So that's, you know, that's, I think they see, Hey, we, we're going to, we can make more money if we have more shows. So I think that's why we see this expansion of their regular tours in Japan. Like Road to Dantaku was so long 
And I'm, I'm not keeping up with all of it, but it doesn't matter what I think because like people are going to these shows and, and buying merchandise. Like the, the lines for merchandise are usually insane. So like I'm going to go to a house. I'm going to Dominion. Like as of this recording, Dominion is next week. I'm going to that. And then the week after is a house show in my hometown of Numazu. And I know each show is going to have these crazy lines for the merchandise way. It's oh, insane. Yeah. Oh, I'll bet. Um, do you sense that there's any exhaustion from the fan base? I think so, because like not all the best of the Super Junior you know, shows have sold out. Uh, not everything from Don't Talk is sold out. I think the main shows will sell out, but like, like what we call the house show circuit, I suppose, is it's not necessarily going to sell out, especially if it's during a weekday. It's a very, very tough sell to get people to come wrestling that's not in Tokyo on, on a weekday. Uh, fortunately, my my the house show that's going to be in Numazu is going to be on a Friday night, so that's that's fine. But I do think at some point, like they're going to burn out their talent roster because like they're going to do they're expanding their tour. They, this year they're going to go to you know they're going to Dallas for the first G one show. They're going to go to Australia. They're going to go to England. That's all this summer. I I can't imagine that the 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 talent is is going to be you know as well rested between tours as they used to be you know they could be like three weeks on two weeks off three weeks on two weeks off that's all in japan that's all riding a bus that the company provides like this is like they're flying to different time zones and they're coming back and then maybe they have like a week off and then they have to go back to wrestling again i I can't even imagine what that's doing to their bodies do you think it's worse than the wwe schedule though no because they're still on like what a, a four day loop, right? Mm-hmm. And it's every and it's every day with no time off. No, they they still get time off, like you know, like for the current best of the super juniors for a long period of time. Like a lot of the big stars were not wrestling on the undercards, and then they had the three three nights in like four nights in uh, Tokyo, three nights in Korokin, and one night in the Makahari Messe, where it was just all junior matches, was just like the tournament matches, and there's no heavyweights involved on these shows. So they they they're getting breaks like on these kinds of shows, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's as bad as a WB schedule because they still get their like two weeks off usually. So, but I can see them expanding their, their schedule to where they're going to get less and less time off. And I don't think the talent's going to be happy because that's what Japanese wrestlers are kind of used to, you know? Right. Right. So let's get back to the tournament. And at this point, I, before we get into the actual finals, what I want to talk about is Keiji Muto because um, in 2000, he was in WCW. He had a horrible year there. Uh, he was teaming with Vampiro. He was involved with the, I think it was with the Insane Clown Posse. They were the Dark Carnival or something like that. Wait, do you remember this period? Yes, I do, unfortunately. Yeah. So he's not having a good year in 2000. And um, this brings me back to He picked a the story. worst time to go back. He picked the, he picked the worst time. Uh, do you know the story like where he's getting a medical checkup in the locker room? No, I don't. So this was told to me by Jeff Merrick. And I talked about this on a previous episode, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it to you for edification. Is that, so, he, so in WCW, like in the locker room, they'd have a doctor doing medical checkups. And they, he, the doctor basically would say, how are you feeling today to each wrestler? And they'd say, yeah, I'm fine. Even though if they're like got bad shoulders, bad knees, whatever. Okay, move on. And I think this story was told to him by Lance Storm to Jeff Merrick, who then related it to me because he thought I would think it was funny. So anyways, they're going through all the wrestlers. Finally, uh, Keiji Muto goes to the doctor and, and he doesn't know what the deal is, right? So the doctor asks him, how are you feeling? He goes, oh, yeah, my knees are shot. 
my shoulder hurts. Every I, I'm in pain all the time. <laughs> and the doctor's like, well, okay then, uh, move along. <laughs> so everyone else is saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm in total pain. Like my knee, I can't, I'm, oh, I'm nearly crippled. I can't, I can't walk on these knees, but I'll go out there and wrestle. And the doctor was just like, okay, well, yeah, move along. Like he, Jeez. he, he cleared him. That's, that was the level of, I suppose, the, uh, the, the, you know, I think it was a Mark doctor that they probably had working for them at that point. So uh, that's my guess. But that, that's just a funny story. I thought it was just hilarious that he didn't know the, the protocol of just saying, I'm fine. And he just told him all his, listed his, all, everything that was wrong with him, which in 2000 was a lot way. Like he, there was a lot of wear and tear on Kishimoto's body, especially his knees from years of doing the moonsault. And he and he's a very heavy man. He's like 240, mm -hmm. 250 at any given time. That's landing all on his knees like for the last 10 years. Like his his knees were completely shot. But so at this point, 2000, like you don't think much of Kejimuto. He was doing the great Muda gimmick. He's not having really great matches. So and then let's move to December 31st of 2000. And there's a big Inoki Bombay show. And he's announced for it. He's going to team up with one of his rivals, Nobuhiko Takata from the UWFI. And they're going to take on, uh, who are they taking on? I think Don Fry or someone. Someone, I forget who their opponents were. But the big thing about this was Keiji Mudo came back and he comes out on the ramp in the Tokyo Dome. And he's got a, he's got a robe and a hood on. And, and when he gets to the ring, they announce his name. He takes off his hood and he's completely bald now. He shaved his head, which was probably... The best thing he ever did in his career because he had that horrible receding hairline and bald spot at the back of his head. Do you remember like his yeah. bald spot? <laughs> it's so sad. It's so sad when you see your heroes like get old. Like it's unfortunate, you know, and the hair is not really something you can say because it's just, you know, even if you have face pain, you can't really hide the hairline. So, yes. So, so he changes. Oh, sorry. His opponents, him and Takata took on Don Fry and... Ken Shamrock in this match uh, way. So that's, wow. I, I, I haven't seen it in like since it aired. So I got to go back and watch that at some point. Uh, so uh, he returned to New Japan at the new January 4th Tokyo Dome show. He teamed with another returning wrestler who was on excursion, uh, Shinjiro Otani. And they faced off against uh, Jushin Thunder Liger and Manabu Nakanishi. Uh, from there, he would split his time between New Japan and All Japan. Uh, he would develop this new, I call it his, like, his wizard character, which in essence, I kind of liken it to like, if he was like the Obi-Wan Kenobi version of pro wrestling, that would be what Keiji Muda was in 2001. Can you see what I'm going with there? Um, please elaborate. Well, it's like his look. He's like this kind of like, like wise old man. Who's like a master of his craft. You know, like he went through various iterations in his career, like of nicknames, like mm -hmm. in, in, of course, the great Muda when he was in America in the NWA, he was, when he came back to New Japan, he was the space lone wolf. Uh, then he became the natural born master and which has kind of evolved into like the, the wizard that, you know, and then mm -hmm. he developed his new finishing maneuver, which was the, the seated, like kind of a running seated knee strike to the face. His opponent would be kneeling and he would run and just knee them in the face. It, that's of course the shining wizard. Yeah. So like, you know, like I, I remember when that move came out, like everybody was buzzing about it. And all of a sudden it was just like the hottest move. And what was it? It was just the guy running up and, you know, rubbing the inside of his thigh against another dude's face. 
um, and people were going nuts for it. And I thought it was just, I, it was brilliant, it's, especially when you watch it in the body of a match, how how well he times it and, and, and where he places it and, and the reactions that it gets. Like, can you imagine just like something that like that and shaving your head reinvigorated this dude and probably added like a decade plus to his career? Oh, for sure. So like, yeah, so he's kind of like what I envision, like, you know, Alec Guinness in, you know, A New Hope as, you know, this old wise. Man, Obi-Wan doing a Shining Wizard would be, would in like the the Obi-Wan solo film or something that they'll make would be just fucking amazing. He could say to, you know, like he could do at the end of Revenge of the Sith, he could say, I have the high ground and they just fucking hit Anakin with a Shining Wizard. Then the Empire would be, would have been toast before he got started. But uh, so anyways, this is the idea like that the image that he's created like he's this master of wrestling this wizard of wrestling um it's so it's it's fucking brilliant i mean like uh, you know a lot of like times when you look at north american wrestlers and their gimmicks you can kind of tell where a lot of influences might come from where do you think this would have come from for him because i can't i don't i don't know because like a lot of his like if you look at his gear at this point he's wearing like long black tights with like white like design patterns on them and a lot of it's reminding me of like von bode you know who von bode is way no i don't so he's he's a comic artist from the 70s or late 60s 70s who created this character called the cheech wizard if you look this up it's it kind of reminds me like the fonts is kind of reminding me of like von bode comics comic Hmm. font so i think that was kind of an influence that's just my guess i've never read anything or heard anything that that suggests this might be true but that's just like my kind of wild speculation um i don't know i think probably from movies right this is like this is like i think like i said like he's like this old wise jedi it's a, maybe there's also from like influence from like gandalf from the lord of the rings and characters like that um but he japanese wrestling is like you know unique like where does masahiro chono's like mm-hmm. you know yeah. leather fetish character come from there's no like correlation necessarily from american wrestling or mm-hmm. other japanese wrestlers like i sense think i sense that's more like his wife is german maybe he went to germany he just fell in love with like crot rock and like was listening to a lot of craft work that's just my <laughs> guess but that that i think a lot of times now with the proliferation of the internet like a lot of japanese wrestlers and american wrestlers like kind of like borrow and steal ideas from each other both like moves and like their images you know yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, unless, unless I, I, you know, somebody he's ever said in an interview or something, I just, it's, it's hard for me to see some, a look like this or, you know, really a style like this with like the hunchback and everything just kind of make its way out of nowhere from like an established wrestler, um, anywhere really like Japan or otherwise. So quite the, uh, quite the, um, uh, makeover. Yeah. I mean, it got a big pop in Tokyo Dome on New Year's Eve when he debuted I mean, and, and think about shocked. the risk risk as well, you know? Like, people could have turned on this. Shaved head and just, like, brand new, like, again, like a move that maybe is a little weird, um, unconventional. Well, I think he had the benefit of just being such a legend at this point in his career. Like, he'd been wrestling for about, like, 15 years, like, and he was multiple-time IWGP champion, so he's he's a legend at this point. So I think the, the fans are going to be really forgiving of this, but it, I, I think it, it was a big positive for him. I think he looked cool. I think the mm-hmm. move eventually got over. It took a while. People were like a little confused by it, including myself, but eventually the Shining Wizard got over. Uh, in Moving on with his career in 2001, on June 6th, 
he would defeat uh, Genichiro Tenru to become the Triple Crown Champion. And he would become the third man up to that point to have held both the top titles in both New Japan and All Japan, respectively. The others being Tenru himself and Big Van Vader. Uh, by late October, he would have won both the All Japan World Tag Team titles, which consists of two belts, and the IWGP Tag Team titles. And both of these championships he would win with Kaiokea, who was a new All Japan wrestler that he took under his wing. And at the same time, he's also the Triple Crown Champion. Wait, so he's Keiji Six Belts at this Jesus. point in his career. <laughs> and if you've seen pictures of him with all six belts, mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a hell of a look. Like when he had like the J, the J Crown, like. Ultimo Dragon, Jusen Thunder Liger, and Gage Sasuke had the J-Crown, which is like consisting of eight belts. They never wore... I don't think there's that many pictures of them wearing all eight belts. I think, like, you know, Sasuke's wearing, like, some of them, and he's he's holding them, but they got all these, like, Japanese women in bikinis holding the belts when they come up for the Tokyo Dome shows. But Keishimoto would wear all six belts on his body to come to the ring. Wait, it, was, it was quite it's a ridiculous. sight to see. Absolutely. So I guess my question is, you know... Um, politically, what do you think, um, how much influence did it really have in order to have this happen? Well, this is coming off the heels of the, the no exodus from all Japan. So all Japan and new Japan are having their working agreement. So there's a lot of crossover of talent on each show. And my understanding is that Motoko Baba, who is the owner, she's Bob, giant Baba's widow. She's the owner of all Japan pro wrestling. She really was taken with Mudo after he had appeared on previous All Japan shows. He fought Kawada. He was doing tag matches with Kea. Um, and that she was like, I think she okayed it. She was like, yeah, we can make him the champion. I like him. To, to the point where she eventually sold, sold all her shares of the company to him. You know? Because she liked him. She she liked him more than she liked Masawa, who is who had offered, I believe, to buy the company from her. But she's like, I don't like you. I'm not selling it to you. But she was, she liked Mudo, a guy from New Japan, enough to the point where she like said, okay, I'm going to do what I wouldn't do for Misawa, who came up in my system, who came up as a son to my father, to my husband, like who's like a son to my my husband. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sell it to him because I don't like him. I'm, I like you. So I'm going to sell it to you, Keiji Mudo. So he, he has been a very, like, I think his charisma is such that like it translates both on on screen on TV and in real life as well. Right. Yeah. Uh and then by January uh 4th at the Tokyo Dome show in 2002, he would have wrestled his last match as a full-time New Japan wrestler and he would jump ship to take over the presidency and ownership of All Japan Pro Wrestling and become its top star. So this is a hell of a year for Keiji Muto and one of the highlights definitely is August 12th, 2001 at Ryogoku Kokigikan, Sumo Hall, where Kishimoto would face Yuji Nagata for the uh, the G1 Climax Championship. So let's go to the match itself. And so I have, uh, you know, we got we got the introductions. We have Mudo with his shaved head. He's got he gets a big pop. He's a legend. I think, I think what we're learning fight. on this podcast is just the benefits of shaving your head. No need to wake up and do your hair in the morning. You don't even have to buy a hat, a snapback hat. And it'll ultimately perhaps end up uh, with you being the president of a wrestling company. This is true, but he's a big fan of uh, baseball caps, way, you know. Yes, right. Okay. I well. might, I might have to get a post wrestling snapback and try to present it to him at a Wrestle One show. Oh, that maybe he'll wear it on TV. Maybe, he, maybe he will wear it all the time. Maybe he'll give me a Buddha mask in return. 
He might. He might. He might spit mist on it first before you put on. I can only hope. That'd be that. That would be something. Anyways, uh, we go to the introduction for Nagata, and he gets a very nice pop. Not as good as Budo, but it's still is still you know a decent one because he's the up and comer still. Like he's just returned back from WCW himself. He's been back in the company for a couple of years, and this is kind of his ascent. He's on his rise to becoming a top level star, but he's not there yet. Uh, from the crowd, we get this massive. Muto, Muto, Muto call. It's amazing. Um, and then we start the uh, the match. And, you know, I got to say, at first, this match is a is kind of a really slow build. There's a very long, drawn-out, feeling-out process between uh, Muto and Nagata. And and we I think what the thing is, is Nagata, Nagata is wearing... His, his psychology in the match is trying to wear down either one of Muto's arms or his legs, because he can use one of his two Nagata Lock finishers. One mm. is the Nagata Lock 1, which is a reverse figure 4. And then the other one is the Nagata Lock 2, which is the Crippler Crossface, which he would use to great effect. So both of those like target each each limb. So one's the leg, one's the arm and the neck. So he's that's what he's working towards. And then I feel that Mudo is working towards like working... Nagata's match. He's trying to work Nagata style, I think, deliberately to help get Nagata over and present him as a big threat to himself, who he know he recognizes his own worth as a legend in this match way. Hmm, interesting. Thinking so you think he decided to wrestle more his style in order to help him, his yes. opponent. Yeah, very interesting. I mean I, I love this style. Like, I, I loved it, I think, you know, like talking about battle arts. Like, I love shoot style. I love it today and i to me there's so many intricacies obviously like you know doing a bit of jujitsu you recognize a lot of what's going on it to me does not feel slow because you know what they're targeting and when it's done well i mean you know when you see guys just like do moves for the sake of doing moves it means nothing but here i felt like everything had a purpose oh definitely we'll we'll see that as we reach the you know the crescendo of the match uh uh, at some point like mudo starts with his his trademark moves like the rolling savat kick and the power drive elbow, uh, he gets Nagata is able to uh, transition into a side mount, and he starts driving his knees into Muto's head. But Muto is able to block with his arms, which uh, Nagata then grabs into an armbar. So this must be right up your alley, way. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you too, WH. You know what were, were what was the crossover with MMA like at this point in time? Because I noticed, I recognize that much of this audience was very familiar with. Basically, any MMA-influenced movements. I mean, they were treating this match like it was an MMA match. He, uh, Nagata gets him in a guillotine, and this audience bought it. Like, they were reacting like this could be the finish. Well, I mean, we had, like, you know, the, the decade before, we had the rise of, like, you know, uh, UWFI. We had the rise of, like, rings and, like, everything offshooted from, like, Fuji- Yoshiaki Fujiwara from Akira Maeda. So, and then Pride is starting to really build up in Japan, and mm-hmm. MMA is, like, a really hot ticket at this point. So, like, Definitely, the fans are very, very educated, know, familiar, educated, and conditioned to understand like these moves are from MMA, that they're they're lethal, and that it's now being incorporated into pro wrestling, like not shoot pro wrestling like UWFI was, but like traditional pro wrestling that New Japan is. So, mm-hmm. like to them, I think it's still not jarring, but it's like okay, that that's from MMA. Okay, it's not pro wrestling, but this is Nagata is kind of the spearhead of that in New Japan, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a style that I still feel like, you know, to this day, I mean, you've seen great samples of it in North America, but I think in the mainstream, like, mm, 
I think you're you're still having you're still seeing a lot of people maybe toy with it and maybe not not be able to perfect it to to a, to an extent that I think uh, previous wrestlers in Japan have. I I think it's because like unless you come from MMA, like it it doesn't look real to some degree. I think like obviously Brock Lesnar has that cachet where he's able to do a lot of MMA moves. It makes sense for him to do so. Same thing with Ronda Rousey. So like a lot of her offense, like. It works for her. I don't think like if you see like Sasha Banks do a lot of her moves, it would look realistic necessarily. And yeah. that's nothing against Sasha Banks because I, I like Sasha Banks. But it, it depends, I think, where people, where fans are going to look at people who come from that background, do those moves. Okay, we buy it. You come from a pure pro wrestling background. We don't necessarily buy it. I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment, but it is what it is, right? It's also the audience as well, I think. You know, depending on the stage that you're working at uh, in front of, um, I think, you know, to like a WWE audience, as long as you kind of train somebody to say to, to recognize that this move is a finisher, whether it be like, uh, I don't know, head like a claw or, or like, you know, uh, or rear naked choke or, or something you know, like a cobra. I think people you a WWE audience will react to it as long as you train them to recognize that it's a finish or as I mean. I think the way it looks means a little bit less. Like it doesn't have to look as devastating, but um, anyway, yeah. Sorry, it's <laughs> okay. No problem. Uh, so uh, uh, Mudo is able to roll out of the armbar, but is selling his arm now. Uh, Mudo recovers. He goes for his handspring back elbow into the corner. So Nagata's in the corner, and he and and uh, Mudo goes for his uh, handspring back elbow signature move of his. Nagata catches him and drives him to the ground. For the Nagata Lock 2, a.k.a. the uh, Crippler Crossface, uh, Mudo is able to escape that by reaching the ropes. Uh, Nagata then goes for leg kicks, but Mudo catches him and delivers the first of first, the first of many, dragging screw leg whips way. A signature, mm-hmm. Another signature move taken from his mentor, Tatsumi Fujinami. Uh, at this point, Mudo goes for a figure four leg lock, but Nagata catches him in a triangle for a good two, three minutes. Until Muto, Muto rolls into the ropes, so like, so I, I gotta say at this point, like I'm conditioned that if someone gets caught in a in a, in a triangle, that that's a, that's a tap out in MMA. But like yeah. in in wrestling, it's still like I can survive a triangle when it's like, nah, I don't I don't like necessarily triangles being used that way as kind of a where to move. It, I mean, you know, sleeper holds the same way, right? Arm bars yeah. the same way. Like all these moves, if if used in MMA or in jujitsu, are like instantaneous. I think. You know, when you're watching a wrestling match, you kind of have to, like, have a level of, like, you know, suspension of disbelief where you can recognize that there's a struggle here. Um, I think in the future, though, as, like, I mean, MMA is already very popular, but I think as as, as more wrestlers perhaps train in, in jiu-jitsu and other, like, shoot, shoot styles, maybe you will get more realistic struggle because you can struggle, like, for a long time in a rear naked choke and have it be believable, um, but it requires kind of, like, knowing what the intricate details are, like... Making sure that the the hand doesn't go under the neck, or in the case of a triangle, making sure that you keep a gap between your um, uh, jugular and, and the person's knee, or just whatever. There, you can do realistic uh, struggle, but you also have to educate your pro wrestling audience about what that looks like. And you know, at some point, maybe it's just too much effort. Maybe, but he's able to get to the rope. So rope breaks are fans are educated to know the rope break. Yes. Okay, he survived. Let's continue the match. So. Uh, Nagata goes back to uh, leg kicks, but Mudo catches him with a basement drop kick to Nagata's knee. He hits three of these in succession, 
and then another dragon screw leg whip, and then back to the figure four. He's also busting out his uh, Perez love hand side. You know, like so it's kind of like the wolf pack symbol, but he kisses it first, and then he puts like it in the air. Isn't this like it's way cooler than a two sweet? Don't you think? Oh, it's he's the only one who does it, so definitely it's yeah. not been like like bastardized to the point where like like you're, you're, like all these jobbers do it now too, like in whatever you know faction that they're in, whether it's the NWO, the Bullet Club the dx whatever right like he's the only one who does it like there are wrestlers now who like copy it because they're paying homage to him mm-hmm. not because they're part of a faction you know like nosa ranagi does it um who does it now like uh oh jonathan gresham is a big kejimuto fan because he does that that pro res love sign like he kisses his fingers and then he does the wolf pack sign so you can tell gresham is a big fan of mudo as well uh uh, Nagata is able to escape the figure four by getting to the ropes. Uh, at this point, Mudo hits a second rope drop kick to the knee. He's really he really hates Nagata's knees. I think they offended him at some point, maybe back in catering way. Uh, another dragon screw leg whip, a figure four. So Mudo's got his formula down. The oh, sequence yeah. is like, ri- but it, the thing is, way it's over. People are popping huge for Dude, this. Like, listen, in in a real fight, you go with what's working. Like if you're you're like you know spinning back fist is landing every time you go back to that every single time. Like again, this was like you know watching this type of style was kind of jarring for me coming from like a North American wrestling background because you never see that. You never see guys like use the same move twice unless it's like a finisher or a signature move. But here it was like all he used and every time it worked and it made sense. Yeah, and it it, it the crowd is hot at this point. Uh, and it makes it. You're saying it's just, it makes sense because what's Nagata's big offensive uh, weapon? It's his kicks. So basically, what he's doing is Mudo is like trying to wear his him down, but also he's taking away Nagata's biggest weapon. And so it it just I when you, when I think about this, I'm like, oh my god, that's he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. This man is a genius. He's a wrestling wizard. He's a wrestling fucking Jedi. Way it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's it completely like just blows me away. Like it's it's his and med- it's in 2001. You know? chlorines are just off the charts. It's, it's incredible. Uh, so we get to uh, a rope break, another drop kick, dragon screw leg whip, figure four. But wait, you know, Nagata's got this scouted now. He's used to this. Mm-hmm. He kicks the, he kicks Mudo in the head and applies a knee bar on Mudo. Uh, big Mudo call. Like the crowd are just totally behind Mudo at this point. They're, they wanted to get out of this. So fortunately, there's a rope break. Uh, Nagata goes back to leg kicks. And hits the ropes, but Mudo catches him with a Frankensteiner. Wait, he, he's got horrible knees. You know, he, he can't do a lot. He can't walk properly. He hits, a, like, Nagata's running at him after hitting the ropes. He catches him with a jumping Frankensteiner. Unbelievable. Yeah. I think you really have to, like, you know, to appreciate this match, you kind of have to, like, know where Keiji Mudo's coming from and know, you know, he's he's had, like, pretty much a career-long battle with, like, bad knees, especially in this point in time to really kind of appreciate like moments like this. And then at this point, like from the rolling out of the Frankenstein, Mudo applies his own cross arm breaker on Nagata, but fortunately Nagata rolls out of that. Uh, Nagata hits his inverted figure four leg lock, the Nagata lock one. There's a rope break. And now like, I think we've reached the the crescendo of this match because the crowd is super hot. Mm -hmm. The tension is going through the roof. I'm sure same thing with the temperature in Sumo Hall at this point. Uh, Nagata goes for a spinning heel kick, but Mudo ducks. Uh, Nagata is placed on the top rope so Mudo can hit a top rope Frankensteiner. What the fuck way he hit a top rope Frankensteiner? 
How rare was this at the time for him? For him, rare. Like I, I, I remember watching this vividly when on tape. You know, this is I'm watching this on tape, and I'm like, holy shit! Like the the Fra- the running Frankensteiner was one thing. He he was never known for the Frankensteiner. You know, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a, a signature move. Like he would use it, but not to the point like the the handspring back elbow. Not like the dragon screw leg whip. Not like the 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 power drive elbow. So for him to hit it from the top with his knees, it's just like he's he's on fire. He's his mentality is like, I'm doing everything in this match to to get this guy over and myself over. So you know, kudos to him. He doesn't have to do these things. You know? Did he have like a fancy surgery or something, or did he have like a, a 2000 era version of stem cell surgery or something like that? How did he all that of a sudden get these like magical knees? Uh, he's a Japanese pro wrestler. <laughs> That's gotcha. it. It's like. I think he's gotten like surgeries like that now. I think he would get. I think he was getting his knees drained regularly. I don't know what the schedule was for when the last time he did it before this match, but I I, I think he's just got. He's just tough. He's just mm. a tough man. Uh, like he's like Kobashi is the same thing. Like he he gutted it out for the last part of his career. Same thing with Muto. You know. So uh, where am I in my notes? Okay, Moonsault. he goes for the cu- huh Moonsault. Oh wait, Moonsault coming up. No, top no, <laughs> top rope Frankensteiner. Top, top rope Frankensteiner. What the fuck? Cover two count. Okay, uh, he does the across the knee backbreaker, which is a setup for his moonsault, which he hits two count. Oh my god, Nagata's like fired up as well. Way uh, he Mudo gets another armbar on. There's a rope break. This is a very very amazing match. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm totally I'm watching this for the first time in like maybe five or six years, and I'm just totally buying into this. I'm just sucked back into this match even though i know what the result is way it's amazing why did you watch it six years ago just curious just just out of nostalgia like oh yeah nostalgia oh i'm probably on a mudo kick yeah at the point at that point so i was like i gotta watch that it's just because it's it's one of my favorite matches that he's involved in uh mudo uh tries for his new finisher the shining wizard uh in the corner but mudo uh, but nagata ducks and then here's a great spot. If uh, so, Nagata ducks. So Mudo's gonna fly over the top rope. He's like hanging on the top rope. He's about to tip over to the outside, but Nagata like kind of pushes him back in. He by his like he kind of springboards him back in. He grabs him by the waist and he murders him with a release German mm-hmm. suplex. This is the first notice. Uh, this is the first uh, instance of where I write fuck yeah. on my notes here. Uh, it was just amazing. Okay, so he's time, doing top row Frankensteiner. So, time so perfectly. Yeah, he's doing top row Frankensteiners. He's he, and then he takes this release German suplex and just like you're saying, beautiful, beautiful timing in Nagata's part. Uh, Nagata hits the wrist clutch exploder. Mudo gets up and hits the shining wizard. Second buck. In my notes, mm-hmm. uh, at this point the crowd is going nuts because they recognize, oh shit, he he's using Jun Akiyama's mega finisher in this match and the new japan commentators i can hear them uh drop jun akiyama's name in reference to nagata using the exploder which is not unheard of because noah was doing some stuff with new japan at this time so it's not like so nagata himself didn't use the the exploder well no but you can draw a lot of parallels with like uh akiyama and nagata because of their uh amateur backgrounds but also they were both really well known for using explorer suplex, suplexes, including like Nagata would adopt using uh, the the, uh, the, wrist ex- clutch. the wrist the wrist clutch exploder. Right. So, and that's why they're very connected throughout like 
their entire careers. Oh, that's so cool. And Akema. Uh, from here, uh, Mudo hits a spinning heel kick. Nagata fires back with one of his own. Mudo hits a Pele kick. Wait, a fucking Pele kick. He jumps backwards and hits Nagata in the head. I couldn't fucking believe it. I'm, uh, yeah, was was that a Pele kick? Was it was it like a it was not a full on AJ Styles like backflip Pele kick though was it? It's a Mudo version of a Pele kick. I'm calling it a Pele kick because he he put the he put the goddamn effort into it. Way gotcha. He's got okay. he he AJ Styles Finn Balor do not have the knees of a 70 year old man at this point in, his, in their careers. He does. He's only like 40 something. He's got the knees of a 70 year old man. He hits a fucking Pele kick. So I'm calling it a a fucking Pele kick. Okay. <laughs> So from there, like now we're hit, we're hit the fucking apex of this match. Uh, a shining wizard attempt by Mudo is blocked. Nagata, gra- uh, Nagata, Nagata grabs the Nagata lock one, and Mudo gives up. He it's too much for him. He's like he hit him with everything, including the fucking Pele kick. But it's the, Mudo's like I can't beat this guy. So it was the crossface. It was the the Nagata lock two. Nagata lock two. Sorry, Nagata lock two. My my mistake here. It's two or three. What's three? Three is like I think the rings of Saturn. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And then he does a. F- There's a four. Mm-hmm. I forget what it is. I think it's back to the legs. I think the four is like involving another leg lock of some sort. Yeah, three is three is the rings of Saturn. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, somebody so, out there will correct you. W. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, they're gonna at me at Twitter. That's fine. <laughs> I, I'm used to like. People adding me, hey, you fucked up on this. Okay, yeah, thanks, thanks for the correction. Uh, as long as it's not Brandon from New Jersey, it's it's okay. Oh my, uh, I I don't want him correcting me. Uh, so the time of this match is twenty two minutes and three seconds, and I'm I'm gonna say the first half I appreciate it, and that feels a, for me a little a little slow. But the rest of this match, I'd say from the like the ten minute mark on, it does not feel like this is a twenty two minute match. It feels like it maybe might have been like a fifteen. Did it match way? I think though so much of of the effectiveness of the second half of this match is because the first was so calm, relatively, you know, so calm and technical. Um, I I thought I I like the I re- really like the match. I loved it actually. I thought it had like a great balance of like realistic looking mat work, but with big theatrical moves kind of peppered in there by the end. All executed with masterful timing and pacing. I thought what really made it though was like, I mean, Mudo's just like, I mean, this is like the the Muda style, just like that very quick, energetic, uh, bursting type of style that just complements. I think Nagata's like mat grappling so well. You have slow, slow, slow. Like both guys look like they're dead, and then all of a sudden this man just like starts moving like a cruiserweight for like two seconds, and then he's back down to like selling and being slow and quiet again. I thought it worked really well here. I thought they held on to all their big spots like uh and 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 let them out at like perfect times to the point where you almost don't really expect it. You don't expect like at least I I don't uh you know you don't expect the first shining wizard. You don't expect the first exploder. You don't expect, you know, um uh uh the yeah, the moonsault maybe you you could see coming but like I I just thought everything was was timed and placed perfectly to uh, great effect. And you listen to this crowd reaction, they bit on everything. Um, I thought this was a match that was incredibly satisfying for a 20-minute match. They didn't have to go like more than that. Um, And it's also a match that I think holds up tremendously well by today's standards. Like if I saw this match 
on Double or Nothing, or if I I saw it on like Josh Barnett's Bloodsport, I I thought it would have stolen the show in either of those cards. So, you know, I think that's quite the feat for a match from two thousand and one. Yeah, it's it, and the thing with this match is like like we were saying before, it, it you know Mudo's. I feel Mudo's working this match to get Nagata over because like the, obviously he knows he's losing to him, he's putting him over, and I think he's like okay. This guy's going to be the spearhead of New Japan's 2000, you know, like him and Nakanishi, Kojima. Well, not Kojima because Muda would steal him to go to All Japan, but those three, Nakanishi, Nagata, and Tenzan are are the guys who are going to like lead this company into the new millennium. So I think he's doing everything in his power to like, okay, I'm going to make Nagata. And he did an excellent job. This is the start, really. This is the the match that, put, that puts Nagata in like that sphere, that stratosphere of being a top level guy. Um, he wouldn't get his IWGP like title shot it, this year, but that didn't matter because he, he did something more important at this point that was more important than winning that title. He beat one of the three musketeers, one of the legends of the generation before him. It's like, you see the guy, he has a t-shirt, the third generation, which is him, uh, Nakanishi, Kojima, and Tenzan. But the se- the generation that came before him mm-hmm. that preceded his generation was Chono, Hashimoto, Keiji Muto, Kensuke Sasaki, Hiroshi Hase. So of those five, the, the three big ones are, you know, Chono, Muto, and Hashimoto. So he beat one of them. The guy who is still working at a top level, like Hashimoto at this point has left the company. He's he's in zero one now. He's he's not necessarily setting the world on fire in all his matches. Chono is broken down. So Muto comes back and you think he's gonna look like shit like Chono does at this point in his career, but he's worked wrestling at this amazingly high level in these big matches. And so to, for Nagata to beat this guy working this level was such a feather in his cap. So like definitely this is if you're a big DJ Nagata fan, you want to know where his ascent starts. This is where his ascent starts to like from mid card to you know to top level and where he would springboard a couple of years later into becoming the longest reigning IWGP champion. Uh, I f- not for defenses but for length, like sink like w- during one reign. Okada's beaten him for cumulative like days as as IWC champion, but he he was the 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 standard bearer. He was the benchmark for which like Tanahashi and Nagata, uh, no sorry, Tanahashi and Okada would be measured against in later years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And for Keiji Muto, how how long would this like renaissance last for him? It would for, for I think it lasts for the entirety of two thousand and one, most of two thousand two. But then like his you know his body starts catching up with him. And then he's not every show he's on is like great. Not every match he's in is great, but for the big matches, like for when he wins the triple crown, when he's in the champions carnival, he like for the big matches there, he'll bust out like, you know, like this, this version of himself, Mm. but he's not doing it for, you know, he's not going to do it for like, like George Hines in the champions carnival. He's not going to do it for Mitsuya (laughs) Nagai in the, in in a random show in Hiroshima. For Kojima in a title match, he's busting it out. For Tenru, he's 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 going to be 2001 Kishimoto. For Kawada, he's going to be 2001 Kishimoto. Up until he leaves, you know, new uh, all Japan, and then he starts his own company, uh, Wrestle One, uh, like a couple of years ago. So you know, and now he's he he retired the moonsault. He he had a match in yeah. in last year. Like Jojo Remy went to that. He told me like it was the last. It was built as the last moonsault match of Keiji Muto's career. So <laughs> I was like, okay, that's probably a good idea. He doesn't need to do it anymore. 
He just needs to do his his pose, right? That's all he needs to do if he's if he's gonna wrestle. But like, if you if you want to explore Keiji Muto, two thousand and one is uh, of this of the century, like the best year of his career in my wow. opinion. He, you know, better than like like arguably him. Like, would you say this was him in his prime? This no, his prime is like you know ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, um, like in. Before that, like I mean, his his physical prime was probably like the time between eighty nine to ninety three. Like this is when he's the great Muda, mm-hmm. and he's like in in NWA with Gary Hart as manager. He's like teaming with Terry Funk and the JTEX Corporation against Ric Flair and Sting. That's his physical prime. And then he comes back. He's Space Lone Wolf Muda. That's also like the, the high point of his career as well. Like he's he's a single star. He's doing the Muda gimmick at points. He's teaming with Hase. To be to form one of the greatest tag teams of all time, like go watch those their matches with Sasaki and uh, Power Warrior. Uh, uh, sorry, Power Warrior and Road Warrior Hawk, the Hellraisers. Watch their match with the Steiner Brothers. It's amazing stuff. Um, but this is the the Renaissance. This is the period where you, you're, you're writing him off because like he had a horrible 2000 in WCW, but he's proved like no, fuck that company. I'm back home. I'm in Japan. I'm gonna I'm gonna show all you doubters who think I'm done. That I'm not done. Like I, when it when it's time to, for me to go, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna like like get the five star ratings. I'm gonna get all the accolades that I deserve because I can still go. That's what I think his thinking is. Do you think this version of of, of Muda would have had any chance in WCW? No, no, not with with Russo as head of it. No, not in 2002 not. at all. But how about like you know like 98? No, I don't think American bookers in WCW ever, or even WF ever understood Japanese talent. No, I, I don't really think, don't. I don't think so either. I think if you had like Muto, at, like like the thing with him, if you took 2001 Muto and put him in like the WB now, like he would have no chance because of his age. There would be a prejudice against his age. I think if he was in AEW, because those fans are smart about, generally speaking, about Japanese wrestling he would get over. I think like someone like Kenny Omega would definitely like go out of his way to protect him as a, like in the booking and probably like say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do a program with him. We're going to have these awesome matches and that would get him over. He would never have that in the WWE. No way. No. So yeah. let's move on. Like, okay. So you've listened to, cause you're, you're editing a lot of these shows way before they go to air. So you're, you're familiar with the format that we're now at the part of a part of, the show that I like a lot, it's called Trivia. Are you ready for the trivia way? Uh, I'll do my best. Okay, so we're going to do uh, three questions involving pop culture of August of 2001. So, Wei, what is the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in August of 2001? Jeez, August 2001 Billboard? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to think if this was the, the, the period of new metal or... Um, uh, you know, was it? Uh, have we made the transition to the the uh, garage rock, uh, uh, indie rock phase, um, uh, or is it not yet? Or is it any of that stuff? Maybe it's more. Um, you know, maybe it's still rap. Is it? Is it like uh, two thousand? It's it's R pop. Okay, um, I'm gonna guess something with Jennifer Lopez. Not Jennifer Lopez. No, it's a group. It's a it's a th- Destiny's uh, Child. Group. Destiny's Child. What song would would it be? Um, two thousand one Survivor. 
Not Survivor. Okay. Uh, Bills, Bills, Bills. No, that's too too late. Um, I know Destiny's Child. I I should get this. Jumping, they're, jumping. They're, they're they're celebrating uh the posterior area of a human being. Oh, bootylicious, of course. Correct. Bootylicious by Destiny's Damn. Child. Uh, what's the number one album in August of 2000 and, uh, 2001? Jeez. Oh, man. I got to take myself back. So I'd be in high school. <laughs> is is it... Uh... Fuck. Corn. It's... it's not corn. It's the furthest thing from fucking corn. <laughs> okay. Let me put it this way. This group is a group... They would be what if 2001 John Pollock would be a member of this group. Okay, a member of the group. Um, uh, like aesthetically, he would. Oh, be- gotcha. Lincoln Park. <laughs> We're thinking completely different John Pollocks. Okay, let me think. Point. I'm just thinking about like the the chain and I don't know, black spiky hair and earrings. That's, That's not the version I'm looking. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of <laughs> different okay. John Pollock than that. Crazy town. Crazy town. It's that crazy town. It's 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 NSYNC. What? <laughs> you would never sure, make, he looked like he, he looked like it. he was he looked like he was in a boy band at some no, point in his he, life. He would never make it. I've seen it. I've NSYNC. seen it. Uh but it's it's celebrity by NSYNC. I think you would fit well, perfectly in Crazy Town. Personally. Crazy Town? Yeah. Oh I'm gonna have to go back and look at some Crazy Town videos from oh, 2001 please. then. I'll get back to you about that. Uh number one movie at the box office? August of two thousand and one. Has to be, um, has to be, um, X Men Two. It's a, it's a it's a two. It's a sequel. It's not X Men though. Okay, has to be Spider Man Two. <laughs> I don't I don't fucking know, man. Uh, uh, okay, let me do one more. Let me do one more guess. It's a comedy. Okay, um. It has to be Austin Powers 2. It's not Austin Powers 2. It's American Pie 2. Oh, shit. Back when they were still in theaters. When they were still in theaters before, like, I guess this was the last one in theaters. Or was 3 the last one in theaters? I'm not sure. I've actually seen we... some of the other ones, uh, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> uh, they have their merits, I I guess, you know? Sure. Uh, let's move on to wrestling. Okay, so we're talking about the G1 Climax. Uh, who is the IWGP heavyweight champion at this point? And I'll give you a clue, Wade. It's no one in the tournament this year. Okay. Um, in 2001, if they're not in the bracket, uh, and it's... Let me see who's even in, in this thing. Um, trying to think who would be there. Is it... Uh, um... He's a he's an Inoki guy. When you think when you think when you hear the term Inokiism, you immediately think of this particular wrestler. Mm. Drawing a blank, you're gonna have to help me out. It's a uh, Kazuyuki Fujita. Okay. Yes. AKA Iron Head. You know, because he right. his head looked like 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 a giant fucking iron bell. Uh, IWGP IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. No clue. Uh, he's a wrestler. A lot of people might not know. His name is Masayuki Naruse. He came from MMA. He's kind of part of like that kind of Inokiism, MMA, like pride movement kind of creeping into New Japan. Uh, he wasn't a really good junior heavyweight, I have to say. One of my least favorite um, IWGP junior heavyweight champions. Uh, let's move over to 
Pro Wrestling Noah, who would be the GHC heavyweight champion in August of 2001? Hmm. Would it be... Hmm. Would it be Masala? It's not Masala. Would it be... Ju- no, Akiyama wouldn't have... No, that, that's correct. Oh, okay. It's Jun Akiyama. This is like before the Mega Kobashi run. So... Like so, I think it was transitioned from Misawa to Akiyama. I don't know if Takayama's in there somewhere. I'm not super well versed on my GHC title history from this period. I'd have to look that up. But it's Jun Akiyama at this point. Let's move to North America. Who is the WWF champion? In August of 2001. So we're talking invasion. Um, geez, that's fucking tough. What date? Uh, the 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 15th. August 15th. I mean, I, I'm not John Pollock, so I can't tell you when SummerSlam was, but that was a, that was a pretty important SummerSlam. Oh, sorry. Slam. Sorry, August 12th. August 12th. Okay, whatever. So. I mean, doesn't really help, unfortunately, but I'm going to say WWF champion, um, Steve Austin? Yes, you're correct. It's right, Steve of Austin. Course. Uh, the Alliance forever. The Alliance. And finally, last trivia question, Way uh, WWF intercontinental champion. Okay. <laughs> You're just taking me back to a terrible time. Um, I'm just. What do you mean? This I like this period of the. Dude, WWE. I'm trying to think who's WCW, who's fi- like WWE, who's ECW, and who's holding these WWE belts. I'm gonna say Rob Van Dam. That's my guess. It's it's not Rob Van Dam. It would be someone who worked with him at ECW, though. Okay. Um, I see title. Um, shit. Who would have been there? Rhino. No, it's it's a Canadian. Lance Storm. It's Lance Storm, yes. Wow, he helped. IC champion. Oh, good for him. Great. Cool. Yeah, so that's the end of our trivia and the end of uh, Cruel Summer for episode 10. Uh, No, 11. Sorry, episode 11. Uh, Way, is there anything you would like to plug? Keep listening to this podcast feed. It's called Post Wrestling. And if you like this show, you want to hear more of it, stay subscribed. If you want to hear more WH Park, listen to him every month on Post Pro Res. Listen to him on this show that's coming out every single Saturday, Sunday for the rest of the summer. And uh, that's that's really it. I just want to plug um, WH Park's uh, summer vacation. He'll be here. You might even be here by the time this is out, right? Maybe. So, I might. I'm hoping, like I talked to John, I'm hoping to be on the, the cafe hangout one, one time. Oh, yeah. If you see WH Park on the street in Toronto... Give him a, a sandwich. He loves his Rubens. He loves... That's right. Um, what's number one? Montreal smoked meat. That's correct. Um, just buy him a sandwich. I'd be happy with a handshake and and, 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 and just a hello. That, that's fine. No pickles. Uh, no, no pickles. No, no, no. I love pickles. Yeah, it'd be I, weird I, to I, get a pickle from a stranger on a street, though. If it's If it's in a jar... I'll gladly accept it, but like I'd open, uh, maybe, maybe no. Somebody, but, please, if you see WH at SummerSlam or something, give him a pickle in a jar, because he will take it. He said, "As long as it's still sealed. If I see that seal broken, fuck you. I'm not accepting it. I'm gonna throw it. I'm not gonna throw it on the ground because that's that's not cool. But I'm just gonna report you to the pickle police or whatever my governing authority oh my might God. be for like pickle open patrol. pickle jars. Yeah." But, Wei, thank you so much for appearing on episode 11. You're going to come back in a future episode as well. 
Uh, we'll look forward to that. But I want to thank you as well for reviewing Raw and SmackDown, watching Raw and SmackDown and reviewing it, so I never have to watch that garbage again. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome, WH. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it as a service for everybody. Um, but, you know, it's it's not... I don't... I mean, I do get some sick joy out of talking about it because I love talking about what I didn't like. It's all well and good to talk about what, what we liked. This match was great. Here's why we liked it. But it, when it's bad, I think it's just as interesting to talk about why we didn't like it. So thank you for listening, WH. And thank you for, so much for lending your, your talents to uh, our network. Yeah, just, just as a spoiler before we finally go away, is that not every match from the G1 Climax history is great. Yeah. Spoiler alert, there's going to be a match where I absolutely bury it. So look, keep on the... keep. Keep, on, keep an eye out for that particular episode when it drops in the future. Uh, so thanks to all the listeners for listening. And I'll see everyone on the next episode. Bye. Bye.